thank you, Henry, for praying for us thoughtfully and, and just very, very tenderly. Thank you. Several weeks ago in Victoria, we received a renewal notice for our insurance policy for our house. As for many of you get those as they come in. And uh, we have earthquake insurance because we live in Victoria. Um, I chose not to take tsunami insurance because we live halfway up Christmas Hill. Doesn't matter very much. The stuff at the bottom is going to get washed, but not on real fine. And, um, but he wanted to know if I would like to buy um, identity theft insurance. You know what that is? That somebody um, steals your purse or your wallet, whatever, and along with your credit cards, your identity is stolen, your social insurance number. Um, and that can create absolute havoc in your personal life as well as the financial hassle. Well, I, I didn't sign up for identity theft. I try to watch those things, but decide not to go with that. But as I'm working through First John, it made me think this morning about our identity as children. And I wonder if we live in a world that can steal and rob that from us. John says in his gospel, you may know this First John one twelve. He says, To all who received him, that of course is Jesus, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right, he gave the authority to become children of God, children not born of natural descent or of human decision, nor of a husband's will. In other words, not out of our human natural lives, but we're born of God. And this morning, to understand for about 30 minutes, that's not just a theological idea. It is a relationship. And it is an identity that's designed to support and sustain and hold us in the rough and tumble of life. If you have a Bible or an iPad or an iPhone or whatever, uh, turn to First John chapter 3, verse 1. And if you keep that open and keep it there this morning. Uh, by the way, the people with iPads and iPhones, I really trust you. I have no idea what you're looking at. Okay? <laughs> Some of you could be playing games. You could be working on the menu for Sunday lunch or dinner. I don't know. I would prefer if you turn to First John chapter 3, verse 1. Okay? And then keep it open because we're going to work through the first ten verses of this chapter. They, they hold, I think, one of the most phenomenal truths in the Bible about what it means to have identity as a child of God. I hope this morning I can share that with you and you can capture that, okay? First John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. And Willis has led us thoughtfully in that this morning in our worship. That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it doesn't know Him. And I have a sense that as John began to write these verses for us, um, his, his pen started to, to move faster and his heart got excited and he got a fresh sense of joy with that. And I want to try to put these, the tremendous truths in these ten verses into a practical way for us this morning. And as I often say to you, and I mean it, it we leave so, so much behind. Um, the depth of what lies in these verses uh, is simply amazing. I want to begin by saying that when you face an emotional struggle, and all of us face emotional struggles, don't forget who you are. That you are a loved child of God. You got that? When you're facing an emotional struggle, in the moment we'll look at moral issues and spiritual issues, but when you're facing an emotional struggle, you are a loved child of God. One of the things that we're told we really want and need today is self health or self-acceptance, those things we're, we're, if we're parents, we're reminded we need to reinforce our children and what they do and complement what's good. When our children were little, 
and they come home from kindergarten grade one with these mysterious pictures that they've made. Um, I used to say things like, what is that? Harry said to me later in the privacy of our bedroom, you don't say that, you say, tell me about it. Because you don't want to crush their very fragile little psyches or whatever. And we need that as adults. You and I are human enough that we need a sense of self-acceptance. We need to be encouraged. Most of us grow better in sunshine than we do in shadows. Or someone said compliments are better manure than criticism. That's a one-liner for you this morning, okay? Um, think about that. As Christians, we want to know that the real source of our self-acceptance really comes from the heart of God to us. It's not just the latest fashion, what other people say, the externals. We are made in the image of God. I think one of the most amazing verses in the Bible is, is Genesis 1.26. That we're made we're made in the image of the Father. So God is the one who, as the Father, truly, truly accepts us. It's God's love that says, you're okay. That says, Alfred, you're okay. And Johnny, you're okay. And Pastor Cindy, you're okay. And so one of the ways we can, we can reinforce that is we affirm each other. <laughs> we can sing about it and confirm. And the church needs to be a place where there's an ethos of acceptance rather than one of condemnation. Christians sometimes are so critical. We've got to just junk that stuff. And we need to create an environment of grace rather than one of condemnation and guilt. We are not to make people perform for acceptance. Got that? We are to accept them in the grace of God. So, go back to verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Great, that's a word that really, it's an unusual word that John uses there. It's the word that says that this greatness does not come from our human system. This greatness comes actually from outside. It comes, we might say, from outside the solar system. It comes from something outside of us. It comes from something that's beyond us. And so we need to affirm each other today and say, you can know today that you're a child of God and you're loved. We need to reinforce that with each other at every opportunity we can get. These are the the words that form the womb of our mutual acceptance together. Perhaps that only goes so far. Because i got to tell you, there are, there are challenges that come along our lives. And we feel alone and we stand alone. And we sometimes wonder, do I, do I really know that I'm a child of God? Do I know that I'm loved and accepted by God? When I was a small boy growing up in Glasgow, I grew up in, in these huge, dirty, smoky tenements. Um, and scarlet fever was a, a childhood disease that raged through these tenements. And killed thousands and thousands of children in Glasgow in the late 1940s into 1950. When I was a small boy, I got that. And I recall it left some residue in me which paralyzed me. And when I was around five or six, I had to learn to walk all over again. Some years ago in Victoria, I faced a, a different and a, a hidden kind of paralysis, much more crippling. I faced the paralysis of the dark night of the soul when I was trapped in a clinical depression. For a long time, I lived in a dark tunnel and there was no light at the end of it, not even a train coming. Some days, frankly, I think I'd have been happy if I'd been hit by a train. Christians will say that if you're truly a Christian and filled with the Spirit, you'll never be depressed. Simply do not know what they're talking about. 
If you know someone who's trapped at times in depression, don't tell them to snap out of it. They'd love to. But I'll just tell them, tell you they cannot. And I would not have made it through those dark days without the unwavering love and the, the deep patience of Harriet, my wife. But I realized that that would only carry me so far. Going to church, I was the pastor. You got to go to church on Sunday mornings. That would only take me so far. I preached my way through that depression. Reading the Bible would only take me so far. There was part of the road that I would have to walk alone and find out if the love of God could reach down and touch me when there were no more songs of the word to hear. One day, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were singing a hymn in church. And I stand up here at the front row and it was the hymn just before I get up to preach. And you may not know this, but I'm, I'm terribly, terribly nervous about public speaking. And those few minutes just before I get up to speak are just a terror for me. I'd like to run away. But I was standing in church and they were singing a hymn just before I get up to speak and open the word. I remember the words like it was yesterday. Oh, the mercy of God, the glory of grace, that you chose to redeem us, to forgive and restore, and you colors your children chosen in him to be holy and blameless to the glory of God, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory and power. To him be all glory and honor and praise forever. And ever, and ever, amen. And I stood there at the front of the church, and it was like a shower of heaven just opened up and simply washed over me. That comes back to me from time to time. It did again this morning, from that opening song that Willis had led us in, and then into, oh, how deep the Father's love for us. It's just a moment where we really can know the love of God. There is a great, enormous power of the love of God to be discovered and found in community, in fellowship, in worship, to be sung about and embraced. But there are moments, folks, when the voices die down, and we need to listen to the silence of our own hearts. And sometimes in that silence, we wonder, do you still love me, God? Am I still your child? Sometimes there's a need to stand alone in that silence and hear just the voice of God. I have a sense that sometimes that comes loudest to us when we are in pain. Maybe some of you are in that kind of pain right now this morning. You need to hear God say to you, know who you are. You're a child of God and you're loved. Remember what Paul says, I'm convinced that I have death nor life, nor this or that, nor height nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is indeed Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know the way in which you've come here this morning. For some of you right now, life is not fair. You hear yourself screaming on the inside. You didn't really hear the words of worship this morning. 
I have prayed for you this week. I have prayed for you this week, and I want you to know that you're loved. I want you to know that you can hear the voice saying you're a child of God. Can you just lift your face up for a moment towards heaven? And the light of God shine down upon you, and you know, you just know how deep the Father's love is for you. You're a child of God, you're loved and you're accepted. When you face the darkness of loneliness, or you face the hurt of pain in your life, when you face emotional struggle, know, please know, that you're loved by God. You turn a little bit from that and ask, when you face a moral challenge, when you face a moral challenge, act like the child of God you will become. You may remember the name Frederick Nietzsche. He was the man who declared that God was dead and that we killed him. So Frederick Nietzsche asked of the British people a very important question. He said, what makes us moral beings? That's a very, very important question. Nietzsche went on to challenge people who thought that they could have Christian morality without the Christian faith. He said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under your feet. He said, there's really no much reason or ground for morality when you do away with God. Think about that. When you do away with God, there's no need really for morality. Now, so where does morality come from? Well, very quickly, for some people, morality might come from guilt. If we don't do moral things, then God or somebody else is going to get us. For other people, it comes out of fear. Maybe it's just the fear of getting caught. You have to ask, are we moral beings only because of fear of getting caught? What if we could get away with something? Would we just be as moral? For many people, morality may come from the residue of conscience. Somewhere embedded within us, we know that lies are wrong and truth is better. For others, it's an inbred sense of duty and responsibility. In some moral teachings, such as value education, done in the schools, um, it comes from what is called teleology, which means that what we sow, we reap. The Bible doesn't disagree with that. In fact, that's what the Bible teaches. Part of the high cost of the existentialism of our society today is that we're seeing the results of demanding immediate gratification. We are living in a generation that we want it now. You see, credit cards and premarital sex come from the same source, which is we want instant gratification, and we do not want to wait. We want to buy it now. We want to experience it now. And when society fails to, to let people understand that, it does them a great injustice. There may be other things. That'll do for the moment. But there will become a moment in our lives when none of these will work. They will not do the job. Parents are not around to monitor us. We're students, perhaps. We're away from home. We wonder about the direction the crowd is taking. Is it good or bad? We're at the place where we will have to stand on our own two moral feet. There will come a moment that you will be in a situation in which you have never faced before. You will have to think and choose for yourself. Guilt, fear, duty, parental values, 
will not take us any further down the road. We're standing at our own moral crossroads. And what will we do? What will help us as child, children of God in this new uncharted ethical territory? In this challenging way, the Bible links hope with holiness. And it links what's called eschatology. There's a big new word for you this morning. It means all of the teaching related to the truth, to the return of Jesus Christ. It relates eschatology to ethics. Now John says, go back to the text in front of you, verse 2 and verse 3. But we know that when he appears as Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then John says, everyone who has this hope, that's the hope of the future, by the way, in him, purifies himself, keeps himself pure. And John says, just as he is pure. You see in the Bible, eschatology, there's the word for you, I think it's, you know, eschatology shapes ethics. Hope shapes holiness. The future shapes the present. Our moral stand each day is to be stimulated and motivated by nothing less than the reality of a person, a Jesus, who is risen, exalted, and returning. And John says, when we shall see him as he is, we realize that in a moment perhaps of worship and wonder. He says, we'll be like him, and then hope and holiness join hands. Eschatology and identity are fused together. It is the glimpse of a risen, exalted Jesus in that way that stimulates and motivates us not only to worship, but also our personal moral choices. There will be times when our moral fibers strengthen by one another. But let me tell you, young adults and others, there will be times when we will stand alone by ourselves before it's called an audience of one. Character is what we do when no one is looking. Strong moral choices come in that moment when we stand alone and we don't listen to the roar of the crowd. We don't mindlessly follow anyone else. We find our place to stand and if necessary, we're willing to stand alone. And when we get to this point, I believe we have arrived at a place of enormous, enormous moral strength and personal conviction. One of the great stories of the Old Testament is the story of a man called Joseph. It, you find it in the last section, Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Remember this young man, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, into the house of a man called Potiphar. And one day, he's, everyone is out in, um, in Potiphar's house, he's being invited by his wife. And Potiphar's wife simply goes to Joseph and she says, Joseph, come to bed with me. It's a warm Egyptian afternoon. Nobody's home. Nobody will see. Nobody will know. Nobody will monitor. Joseph, come on, let's go to bed together for an afternoon. Joseph declines. And here's his answer. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph knows that there is an audience always an audience. It is the invisible audience of one. And Joseph plays his life to the audience of one. The only audience that is really important in your life and my life and that audience is God. When we choose right in that lonely, unseen moment when no one is there to see, no one to witness, no one to applaud, we have silently but powerfully connected eschatology to ethics. We've connected our hope as Christians to holiness. And we have taken a gigantic step of growth. When those moments come and stand before you, can I say to you, 
Young adults, don't miss them. Step boldly in to face them and face their challenge. Remember who you are in that moral moment. You're a child of God. Nothing less than that. You've got to move on. When you face a spiritual challenge, be the child of God that you really are. Again, look with me at verse 8. He who does what is sinful of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Do you think about that? If you say this morning you're born of God, John says you you do not and you cannot continue to sin. We'll explain that in a moment. Because God's seed remains in me. You cannot go on sinning. He says, because you've been born of God. And then he says in verse 10, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. In other words, we're obvious by the way in which we live. You know, all of you have, um, have heard yourself, someone say, I just couldn't help it. Just, you know, I just couldn't help it. John says to you, Grow up. Grow up. First of all, he says, you understand that Jesus appeared in this world for a purpose. It's to untie the works of the devil. All of the devil's work is to try to tangle you up in knots. He makes you sure you're all tangled up and all messed up in your head. He says, well, you know what Jesus came to do? Jesus came to untie you. He came to set you free. So don't play this victim game with me. I couldn't help it. He says, grow up. In his earthly ministry, Jesus went toe-to-toe with Satan. He faced him down. He challenged, confronted the grip that Satan had take over the world. Jesus met him face-to-face in the wilderness over the issues of ambition and power and materialism and sensuality. And Jesus said to him, you are going to have to let go. You're going to have to untie these people. And that conflict came to a final showdown on the cross. Jesus Jesus did not come to glory in spite of the cross. Jesus came to glory in and through the victory of the cross. And God reveals sin for what it really is. And he drags it out into the daylight. And he nails it to the cross. But people are still tied up in addictive lifestyles of drugs and alcohol and pornography and materialism. How can we change? We can change because Jesus has loosened the grip that Satan has over our lives. It's one of the most powerful truths in the scriptures for us. Jesus has come to set you free. To untie all of the ways in which the devil tangles us up in knots. We have been set free from a life of habitual, deliberate, conscious, premeditated in sinning. And here's how. God has impregnated you with his seed. And he's planted a whole new nature inside you. When you became born again, God implanted the seed of his identity in you and gave you a new identity. Can you grasp that? John gives us, I think, a truly breathtaking picture of what a Christian is. It's more than someone trying to keep the golden rule. More than someone trying hard. It's more than a sinner who's simply forgiven, although that's true. A Christian is nothing less than someone who has been given a whole new identity from the inside out. For all of us who are parents, one of the most amazing things to happen to us is 
when, if you remember as husband and wife, your wife said to you that she was pregnant and you were going to have a baby. Someone said that changes your whole lifestyle. What that means is, no life and no lifestyle. That's what that means. But in a silent moment, in the darkness of a woman's womb for a period of nine months, all of the potential of human life is being created. The entire imprint of a person is being formed. We now know that as DNA. Fingerprints. Size family likeness are all packed into this genetic miracle David uses that in the Psalms he says I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made your, your works are wonderful my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed body what it really means in Hebrew that he says my, my body hadn't been unpacked or unrolled yet it's still all tightly kind of bundled up and David wonders at the way in which God sees him and intimately knows him in his mother's womb. That's the foundation of our human identity. That's the sacred stamp in you and in me. And John dares to use this picture, this same metaphor. And John says that God implants his spirit into the womb of our humanity. He impregnates our humanity, it says in, in that verse 8 and 9, with his seed. That is the Greek word sperma. John uses a word for, for sexual intercourse. And once again he's saying it happened at the incarnation, the birth of Jesus into the womb of Mary, that the word enters and it impregnates flesh. And he gives birth to this new identity that is in us. He says in verse 9, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, God's sperma, remains in him. He says he cannot sin because of being born of God. You see, there's a genetic code that determines our lives as people. And so there's a spiritual DNA, the seed of God from the Holy Spirit, which stimulates our lives before God. And so it is unnatural for people with this new identity, born of the Spirit, to be involved in continued, premeditated, habitual sinning. There is a new code written within us. Listen to the heartbeat of the Spirit in the womb of your life. Your identity as a Christian. My identity as a Christian comes from nothing less than an act of incarnation. The word entering flesh. Your flesh, my flesh. And a spiritual DNA from the Holy Spirit is silently shaping, but powerfully shaping our lives. Hold that back for a minute. Just let it death take your breath away. When we get there, even for a flickering moment, we have taken a step beyond the norm. We have entered into a moment of personal understanding and insight from which we can never retreat and for which we will now be responsible. John says, you can't go on sinning. Now why do we sin? Well, in all of us, there's days and times when this new identity becomes so impoverished, so malnourished, so weakened, so anemic, that it forgets the reality of the new nature and slips back to being an old person. That's another study. 
So we must continually nurture and feed this seed of God embedded within us. Feed this new nature by the word of God, by prayer, by the people of God, so that we're encouraged to read God's word and grow in grace. That's why as Christians we're called to desire the sincere milk of the word so that we may grow thereby. Do you know in your soul the depth of your identity? Do you know in the most intimate places within you that you're stamped with the stamp of God? This week in one way or another something may happen that will try to eclipse the warmth and the light of God's love over your life or mine. And I say you don't let it steal your identity. You're a child of God. Look up and hold on to that. You may face a moral situation, small or large, in which you will have to make a stand. No one may see what you have to do and decide. Let hope stimulate your choice. Remember who you are. You're a child of God. Remember that God has impregnated your life with his feet. You're a child of God. Don't let anything else or anyone else steal your identity. And don't live any less than what you truly are. Well, this is going to come back and lead us in worship this morning. May I invite you to stand.